so thankful for these powerful moments of worship that we get to have together and to sit at his feet, which is what we're going to be talking about this morning. So we get started, I'd like to draw your attention to uh, the bulletin you received whenever you came in. There's a few important uh, announcements, some information on there, new member orientation coming up soon on June 18th, if you're praying about considering being a part of our church. Also, our Fraser Young Adults are going to a Biscuits game on June 17th, and so if you'd like to be a part of that, you can see the email uh, that is there. We're also going to have a Celebrate America event on June 28th. That's a Wednesday night. If you'd like to come out and be a part of that, we've got food and games and a great time of worship together. Uh, so looking forward to that. I also want to say thank you for your giving week in and week out. We can't do what we do here uh, without all of us giving of God's tithes and our offerings. So thank you so much for that. And this week, I want, we want to Uh, draw your attention to Pastor Ken Austin and his church, New Walk of Life. Pastor Ken is an amazing, amazing man of God. He just spoke at our men's uh, supper not too long ago, and I'm so thankful uh, for Ken and his work in the city. This church does amazing, amazing things uh, to the glory of God, and so please keep them in your prayers as you go throughout the week. We like to pray for other local churches to remind ourselves that the kingdom of God is so much bigger than just us in this room at this time. So thank you for that. Our text this morning is going to be found in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Luke 10, verses 38 through 42. And so if you don't mind, just one more time, if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Luke 10, 38 through 42. Siri's not sure about that. Verse 38, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord said to her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you. As human beings, I think many times we are infatuated Uh, at least with the idea of danger or something dangerous. Uh, There are whole shows built around this, reality TV and different things. People, you know, climb mountains. Sometimes they go rock climbing without a rope. Uh, You know, there there are things all around us that are, are extreme sports, and there's something about something being dangerous that kind of just entices us. I was thinking about this as the family was, we were at the zoo yesterday with some friends who were in town. I'm just walking around, I'm seeing these huge animals and I'm thinking, you know, there's nothing but wire separating us at this moment, you know, and they look hungry, you know, one of those things. 
Um, but this idea of danger, it, again, it's something that is always on our mind. We think about what are the dangerous places to go that we don't want to go? What are the dangerous cities there are you know, in any given country? Or what are the most dangerous countries around the world? And we can list those things off, and there are statistics for how we judge that. But this idea of danger, though, is just something that's always on our mind. It's always in front of us. And sometimes it is very enticing for us to either watch or see or to figure out. But I think for a Christian, the most dangerous place for us to be has really nothing to do with geography, but it has more to do with the most dangerous place for us to be is to not be at the feet of Jesus, to not be at the Father's feet, if you will. This idea of being at God's feet is something that we see throughout Scripture, but we also see it throughout history. In Scripture, we see this idea of being at God's feet or being at His footstool as a place of rest or a place where you would eat, like reclining at a table or a place of instruction. Throughout history, we see this play out as well. Uh, the Egyptian, famous Egyptian king Tutankhamun, who we call King Tut, he had a footstool that sat in front of his throne and he had the images of his enemies carved on that footstool so that while he's sitting on the throne, he's literally putting his feet on top of them or on their heads. We see this idea throughout Scripture about God's footstool. But God's footstool, what we see, is more of a place of invitation. We are invited to come to this very sacred and special place at God's feet. For example, Psalm 132, verse 7 says, Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. We see that this is invitational language where we can approach we can approach God who sits on his throne, but we must do so humbly because we go so far as his feet. And in that, there's an image there where we are humbling ourselves, but we are exalting God. That's what Psalm 99 verse 5 actually tells us. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. This idea of approaching God and this invitation to come to God's footstool is a place that reflects how vast God really is how big God really is in our place before him. We see this in places like Isaiah 66, verse 1. It says, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Again, communicating the vastness of God, but it's also an invitation that all of those on earth can come and worship him. And we say, well, does that not sound prideful of God? No, it's just who God is in all of his glory, in all of his majesty. He is so amazing and majestic, that, but he invites us to come to that place, that place of safety. And I say a place of safety because the safest place we can be is at the Father's feet. And there's something instinctive inside of us as human beings, if you think about it. I can't tell you how many times I've been walking as Eddie Ray was growing up. I've been walking and a dog run up or, or he senses danger or he's you know, unsure in some way. And what's the first thing that he does? He runs and wraps his arms around my leg at my feet because he knows that, that here I am safe. My father will protect me or my mother will protect me. And we see this in little children. Instinctively, they know because of the love they've received from the father and the mother, they know this is my safe space. And the same is true for us whenever we are uh, in life and whenever danger you know, rears its head in our life uh, or worry or anxiety, that's the place we must run as well. We must run to his feet as that place of, yes, exalting him, but also understanding that he is our father and he loves us. Now, 
the context that we're looking at today. We see it in verse 38. Jesus is, the text says, he's on his way. It says, now they went on their way. And we know from last Sunday that the way that they are going is the way toward Jerusalem. Uh, Luke 9, 51 tells us that Jesus at this point in the gospel has set his face toward Jerusalem. He is on his way to the events that will ultimately take place at Calvary. So that is the way in which he is on. That's the journey that he is on. But it tells us that Jesus entered a village. Notice that it just says a village, and there's a woman there named Martha, and she welcomed Jesus and his disciples into her home. Now, we all know the village that he's speaking of, and the village is Bethany, and we know that from John's gospel. We also know Martha. We also know Mary. We know they have a brother named Lazarus, even though he's not mentioned here in this text. But notice that Luke kind of keeps it obscure. He doesn't say Bethany, even though he knows it's Bethany. Notice he just says a village. Some of your translations say a certain village. And part of the reason why Luke is a little obscure here is simply because the events that are taking place in this moment are actually chronologically out of order. And many people have pointed this out. If if Jesus is going on his way to Jerusalem, Bethany is technically out of the way. So the question becomes, why does Luke tell this story right here in this particular place in Luke 10? Well, we have to remember uh, this past Wednesday, if you were here for Wednesday night worship, happens over in the East Sanctuary at six o'clock, we talked about the Good Samaritan. And we see the Good Samaritan come right before this text. And so what Luke does is he wants to make sure that no one gets confused about what being a follower of Christ really is, what being a disciple really is. Because sometimes we read the Good Samaritan and we moralize the Good Samaritan and we make ourselves the Good Samaritan, right? And we'd go try to be a Good Samaritan. And trying to be a Good Samaritan, we can fall into the trap of works righteousness, where we think if we do enough good things, then somehow God will accept us. But that's not the message of the Good Samaritan. On Wednesday night, we talked about how the message of the Good Samaritan is that Jesus is the Good Samaritan. He's the outsider who breaks in, and we are actually the wounded one on the road. And he is the one that binds up our wounds. He is the one that pays our debt. He is the one that takes care of us. But just in case someone would misread the parable of the Good Samaritan, what Luke does is he puts this story right behind it, again on purpose, because what Luke wants to communicate is that an important aspect of discipleship is learning to be quiet and learning to listen so that we may learn from the Master. And so three questions. Question number one, what was Mary doing in this text that was so important? Question number two, what was Martha doing in the text that was so wrong? And number three, what effect did this have on Martha? Okay, so what was Mary doing? What was Martha doing? And what effect did it have on Martha? First question, what was Mary doing in this text that was so important? We find her in verse 39. She is Martha's sister, and she is sitting at the Lord's feet, listening to his teaching, the text says. One of the things we have to remember is that all throughout Scripture, all throughout Scripture, there's this constant plea from the Father to come and listen to him. We see it in places, and there are many others, like Psalm 81, verse 8, where it says, Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you, O Israel, if you would but listen to me, God says. 
God says, I would admonish you. And a lot of times we think the word admonish carries this negative kind of corrective language, and it does in one sense. But to admonish means to direct one's thoughts, to direct one's mind. What God wants to do is give us a mind direction, a course correction in our mind. He wants to direct our thoughts toward him. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we let God do that? But over and over, we see this invitation from God, please come listen to me that I may admonish you, but not in a, you know, an overly heavy way. He wants to correct the way we're thinking. We track that all the way through the Old Testament. We see Jesus come into the world, and we see Jesus is picking up on this theme that his followers must listen to him, but he gives the promise that we would be able to recognize his voice. But we see this in places like in John 10, 8, where Jesus says, all who came before me were thieves and robbers. They were false prophets that came before. He says, but the sheep did not listen to them. He goes on in John 10, verse 16, and says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, talking about Gentiles, talking about most of us. And he says, and I must bring them in also, and they will listen to me. So there'll be one flock, Jew and Gentile alike, and one shepherd, he says, and so this idea of listening and being able to listen and being able to recognize God's voice is a major theme throughout Jesus' teaching. And again, the, uh, the reason why that's the case is because God has been warning his people throughout the centuries that we have to tune our ears into God and listen to him. And, and so many times we can get drug off course, can't we? So many times, though, God's voice seems to get muddled with other voices, even other religious voices or spiritual voices. This is why God was warning his people back in Deuteronomy 13. He says this. He says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, meaning a miracle happens, if he says, let's go after other gods that you have not known and let's serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer, for the Lord your God is testing you. God actually allows these tests in our life to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, which every good Jew would say they did. And so even there are times when there are people around us who it seems that they're religious, it seems that they're spiritual, it seems that they even have some kind of supernatural power. And the question is, is, is this of God or not? Because there definitely is a spiritual realm around us. And he goes on down in verse 6 in Deuteronomy 13. He says, I don't care if this is your brother, your son, your daughter, your wife, or a friend. The question is, is it of God? That's the question. We see this in Jeremiah 23, verse 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own mind and not from the mouth of the Lord. Again, we see this theme throughout Scripture that we are called to come and listen to God. At the same time, there are false voices that are out there in the world. That's not a new thing with our culture. That's been around since the beginning of time. There are false prophets, false voices. Yes, they're religious. Yes, they're spiritual. But no, they are not from God. That's why when you get to the New Testament, you'll have 1 John 4. John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Many of them have. He goes down in verses 5 and 6, and he says, They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. It's like a mob mentality. He says, We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. 
Whoever is not from God does not listen to us, and by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. He's saying there is such a thing in the world as a spirit of truth and a spirit of error, and everything that claims to be spiritual, religious, or right is not necessarily of God. And the thing, the litmus test that we have to have is the gospel itself, which is the broader context of 1 John. We test everything through the gospel because what we do as human beings is we naturally uh, move toward things that fit our affinity, things that we like, things that sound good to us or whatever it may be. So we even pick churches like this. We say, well, I like the church setting. I like the preacher's cadence. Or I like the music. Or I like the way we pray. I like how we pray and those type things. The question is, is the gospel being preached? Is the gospel being sung? Is the gospel being prayed? Is the gospel being sought and taught? That's the test that we see given to us from the New Testament. And so one of the things that Mary is doing here that's so important is she is heeding the warnings of the past and she finds herself in this place before Jesus and in that place she is quiet. That is so hard to do, isn't it? It's so hard to quieten ourselves before the Lord. The world we live in is so noisy. And those noises just reverberate and they echo in our mind constantly, so much so that we even say things like, I can't turn it off. I can't stop thinking about this or that. Have you ever been there? Am I the only one? No? Okay. Yes. I got two hands, right? The world is loud. It's so loud. And it reverberates in our mind constantly, constantly, constantly. She quieted herself, and then she was listening. She was listening. As a pastor, the number one challenge I hear from people is, I want to hear God, and I can't hear his voice. Now, if we believe that God exists, and we believe that God speaks to us, then we have to conclude, if I can't hear God's voice, the problem is not God, right? We have to conclude that the problem is actually on our end. And the primary way, the supreme way in which God speaks to us is through his word. His revealed word has been revealed for all times, all people, in all places, in all cultures. It's his word that speaks to us, no matter if we live in Montgomery or Glasgow, Scotland, or wherever it is. God's word is what speaks to us, primarily and supremely. And so when we come to those places and we're asking ourselves, you know, I haven't heard from God, the question is, how much are you opening his word? But here, Mary has the living word in front of her. She has gotten quiet. She is listening to him. And when you get quiet and you listen, that's when you can learn. That's when you can be admonished. That's when God can correct your thinking about particular things. And that's exactly what's happening. And what Mary is doing that is so right is that Mary has planted herself in the most important, on the most important real estate on the planet. And that was right at Jesus' feet. It was A.W. Tozer who said, the man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. And that's what Mary understood in this moment. But it raises the second question, and that is, what did Martha do that was so wrong? Well, first, we see that as Mary is sitting at the Lord's feet listening to his teaching, Martha, the text says in verse 40, was distracted with much serving. She was distracted with much much serving, so she went up to Jesus, and she says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me here to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Tell her to help me. And Jesus responds to him, Martha, Martha. Notice he didn't get on to her. He didn't jump on her. 
No, we see from John's gospel that Jesus loves this family. He says, Martha, Martha. He's calming her down. He says, you are anxious and troubled about many things. He does not condemn her, but he is redirecting her thinking. And notice what Martha's doing. Notice that she's showing extreme hospitality. This is Jesus and his disciples. I mean, this is a lot of guys. I'm sure they had a big appetite. And she's invited them into her home, and she is the one preparing the meal for them. That had to cost a lot of money, so she's not only being hospitable, she's being extremely generous. In fact, Martha is doing exactly what, in many ways, what the Good Samaritan had just done in the parable we read Wednesday. Martha is doing exactly what the Good Samaritan was doing. Not only that, Martha is showing a lot of courage here. A lot of courage. I mean, you think about it, at this point in Jesus' ministry, as he's making his way toward Jerusalem, uh, disciples are deserting him. We see that John, like John 5, 66. People are trying to kill him. We see that in John 7, 25. People are speaking ill against him, John 7, 20. Right now, actually, at this point in Jesus' ministry, it's actually dangerous to associate with Jesus, especially around Jerusalem. And here's the thing. They're in Bethany. They're only two miles from Jerusalem. At this point, she's doing something hospitable, she's being generous, and she's being courageous. But what Martha got wrong, if you will, is that her serving distracted her from the one she was serving. Her serving was distracting her from the one who was sitting right in front of her. She missed the fact that God himself was present in the house. And so many times we can fall into that Martha mentality. We can be be busy about the house and the table and the dishes and the food and we forget who's sitting right in front of us. We can become, become so preoccupied with those particular things but when God is in the house, technically everything else is trivial. Third question, how did this affect her? The text says that she became distracted with much serving. The word distracted means to be pulled in multiple directions at once. She's unable to focus. Everything is foggy in this moment. And then because she is distracted, this has an effect on her psychologically and spiritually. Psychologically, whenever she goes up to Jesus and says, do you not care about me? Notice that Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're anxious. You have become anxious. Anxiety has risen in you about this particular thing. And actually, it's Martha's accusation toward her sister that reveals her anxiety. Do you notice that? It's her accusation that reveals what she's actually anxious about. So if you find yourself being anxious, just listen to who is it or what is it that you seem to be talking about quite a bit. But not only is this playing on her psychologically, spiritually, she is becoming self-righteous. Do you notice her language in the text? She goes up to Jesus and says, Lord, do you not care? Remember, she's talking to God here. The one who's like about to die for her sins and the sins of the whole world. But she says, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me, my, me, me, my, me, me. All of a sudden, because of her serving and because she lost sight of who was sitting right in front of her, even in Jesus's presence, she becomes self-righteous. You see, when we seek to play the role of the Good Samaritan, 
But Jesus is not at the center of who we are. If he's not the focus, it will always lead us to become self-righteous. And we find ourselves saying, well, well, look at my serving. They need to do something. They need to do something. The young people need to do something. The old people need to do something. That group needs to do something, right? Oh, tell me I'm wrong. (laughs) All that is is self-righteousness coming out. We lost sight of who is before us. And we, we reverse the portion. Notice that Jesus says, oh, Martha, she, Mary, chose the good portion. and It'll never be taken away from her. Portion, that's inheritance language. Remember the Good Samaritan? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is still answering that question. She chose the good portion. What Martha did was she reversed it and made the serving all about herself. And Jesus says, it's not all about you, it's all about me. And it's all about you getting quiet and listening and learning from me. Psalm 119.57, the Lord is my portion. He is my portion. He is the one that I want above all things. He is the inheritance that I want to receive above all things. It's him. It's him. But for Martha, her serving became her prize. And when your serving becomes your prize, you get overwhelmed by it. Every time. Again, when you try to play the role of the Good Samaritan and you're running around serving, but Jesus is ultimately not your focus and he's not the one that your eyes are focused in on, even the good things begin to overwhelm you. If I could summarize this whole passage for us today, I would summarize it this way. I would say that we cannot let our work overshadow our sense of wonder. We cannot lose sight of how beautiful it is to see God in all of his glory, in all of his majesty. We can't lose that sense of awe that when he is in the house, when we find ourselves living at his feet, that is the safest place for us. If we lose sight of that and we start continuing to serve, saying we believe, all of a sudden our serving becomes all about us and what we've done for God. And my friends, I hate to break it to you, God does not owe you anything. Nothing. He is God. But he invites us to come and sit at his feet. And sit at his feet in wonder and think about who he is in all of his majesty and all of his might and all of his awesomeness. And when we lose sight of that, it becomes all about us. In my prayer that we would not lose our sense of wonder of who he is. You know, I've never had to go up to a grandparent or a new parent for that matter and say, you know what? You're a bad grandparent. You never show me pictures of your grandkids. (laughs) Because when they look at their grandchildren or the parents look at that new baby, they're amazed. Look what God did. This is a miracle. And because of that, it just naturally comes out and look, look, there they are. And I'm like, nope, breakfast, lunch, nap time. So you, I didn't ask for that, you know. But when you're captivated by something, you show and share it, don't you? And we are, when we're captivated by the wonder of God, and he is truly wondrous to us, we will show and share him. But he has to stay in that place. Him on the throne, we at his footstool. Amen. Father, would you help us?
remain there. Would you help us not to make much of ourselves, to make much of you? Just to make much of you. Would you forgive us for those moments when this becomes about us? Lord, we have the audacity to pray this morning that nothing else, nothing else would compare to you. Nothing else would take the place that is rightfully yours. And we pray it in Jesus' good and powerful name. And everybody said, amen. Would you please stand?